I'm really glad Nancy Reagan is dead. Why? I don't know. I'm just like looking at her Wikipedia page and I'm like, I'll see you in a fucking hell, Nancy Reagan. <laughs> but isn't it sad when the person who, when a person who gives really good, um, <laughs> we hate to lose an icon, you know. Does she, Brian, does Nancy Reagan qualify as a Mount Rushmore Karen or is she technically not a Karen? She's on the Mount Rushmore. Fools rushing. It's the Limbaugh podcast show with Brian Christine Clay, you know. Yes, you drop on by. Oh, who they choose the freedom medal for a presidential medal for the Limbaugh Show. Hi, and welcome to the Limbaugh, a show about the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who's received it? Who should receive it? And maybe a couple who shouldn't. I'm Christine Sear. I'm Brian Tuft. <laughs> and I'm Clay Russell, who is reading the show notes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, we're not going to belabor the point that it, we took another extended hiatus, but we are back just in time for the holiday saison. And we're going to do it. I feel like uh, a lot's happened since last time. I think England has had six prime ministers, half of which are forgettable women named Liz. A very memorable woman named Liz went to the big British empire in the sky. Midterms, you know, we got a lot of stuff to cover, but look, we're going to cover the most important thing, which was after... There's there's one one issue facing this nation that is larger than anything else. It's bigger than yes. the world. I qualified as a constitutional it's crisis. Bigger. Agreed. And the yeah. silence from Biden on this issue is deafening. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm very very interested to see what he's so going to Taylor do about this. Swift has put out five albums, right? Three original and one two re-records. Two re-records. And it's been several years since that woman has gone on tour, and the flawed human beings at Ticketmaster thought this is fine. We got this. We're gonna we're gonna do this weird little pre-sale thing, and it's gonna be no big deal, guys. It was a big deal. People died. Mm. We, it was we a lost, disaster. Okay. We lost our innocence. We lost a lot of good men out there. It's disgusting. So Brian, Brian was in the trenches himself, and I know that he's working through his PS, PTSD. But if you feel comfortable sharing your experience, um, so it honestly wasn't very good. <laughs> mm. Mm. Also, in the hiatus about everything else that happened, uh, that Christine just surmised, I went to Paris. <laughs> And while I was in Paris, I had to sign up for the Taylor Swift presale. And everyone thought that I was going to forget because I was in Paris. And I didn't. And I signed, I didn't just, I, when you signed up for the guaranteed fan presale, where essentially they were vetting you to make sure you weren't going to like buy the tickets and sell them on the second market, they, um, there was a queue. And I said, I don't want to wait in a line. I'm, going to wait. There has to be a point. You have 10 days to register for this uh, pre-sale. There has to be a point where there isn't going to be a line. And everybody was like, you're waiting too long. You're going to be so far down on the list. This is crazy. Out of everyone I know who tried to get the tickets, I would say probably about a dozen people. I was the only person who got a code. 
and I over ten days. Uh, so it took ten. It, you had to wait. You had you had ten days to sign up. On the eleventh day, they let you know if you got oh a code or not. I was one of the. I mean, literally, people were in my DMs offering me money on Instagram, like when I posted that uh, I was in. And then that would have been hilarious because if I had sold it, odds are they wouldn't have gotten tickets anyway. I had the day off, thankfully. I spent three hours in my house on this very computer where we are recording this podcast (laughs) waiting to be let into the Ticketmaster app to be able to buy tickets. And what they did was they essentially started on one side of the stadium and went all the way around. And the entire... Like, let's say section 113, 213, and 313 were all for sale. And it was from the floor all the way to the top. I was one of the lucky ones. My tickets were $202 a piece. Um, I, of course, wound up paying closer to $1,100 with Ticketmaster fees and taxes. Which is hilarious that they would actually bother to charge for fees with that type of experience. It's clearly not going to their infrastructure or technology. Where's that money going? But the to me, you want to call it a we got you by the balls fee. That's fine. Let's call it a spade a spade. Don't call it a convenience fee. Like I had to cancel a lunch because I couldn't leave the house. Like I was like the fucking woman in the window. Like I was just walking around the house with the laptop, like waiting for. I jumped out of the shower. I was naked when I bought my Taylor Swift tickets. Like as though I was being reborn as a Taylor Swift ticket holder. <laughs> I didn't even, that's so beautiful. So, oh my God. The whole thing was a fucking disaster. And then I love her. I don't, she listens to the podcast occasionally. I'm curious if she will bring this up to me. But my cousin kind of complained because that's who I'm, I bought four tickets. I'm going with my sister, my cousin, and my cousin's husband. We'd been talking about it since we went down to visit them during the pandemic and folklore had just come out. Like when she tours again, we're going oh to go see yeah. her. So, This has been a long time coming, and she sees the tickets, and I'm section 100 and something on the side of the stage, and she goes, I'm worried that the view is going to be a little obstructed. And this was before we find out that only 2% of people who applied for tickets ended up getting them, before we see that the tickets are selling for $70,000. Like, this is literally the knee-jerk reaction she has. But she's now whistling a very different tune because I haven't sent her a Venmo request for her share of the tickets. And she was like, they're still mine, right? And I was like, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but what if there's a pillar That's in the dark. way? I mean. See, Ticketmaster is destroying families as well. Like, I don't want I don't want you to have an obstructed view. I mean, I could pay off the mortgage with my Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> so, like, there's a part of me that's kind of like how, you know... Is she going to do Last Great American Dynasty? Or, you know, maybe I should buy a summer home. (laughs) I, uh, okay. Concerts are not a brand new concept. No. Stadium concerts are not a brand new concept. Buying tickets for a stadium concert online is not a new concept. So I still am struggling to understand how this was such a shit show. Also, the pent-up demand of one of the biggest recording artists in the last few decades, having five albums that she has not toured. It's just like, did you think this was going to be like a quiet little uh, rollout here? I don't know. But why is it that Beyonce and everyone else can play the exact same stadium and like have normal ticket price sales and all of that shit, yet like somehow they all of a sudden can't figure it out? 
Nobody knows. It's clearly a corrupt system that's based on a monopoly. And I know that we're joking about what Biden has to say and everything, but like there is a big lesson in this, which is like, hey, this is a red flag here that maybe the government should investigate how they are able to charge these exorbitant, quote unquote, convenience fees yet have such a mess with this. It's almost like unfettered capitalism is a is a problem. The idea that the ticket sales were still happening when uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out and was like, we will be looking into Ticketmaster. I was like, you know, I always liked you. You're a girl from Queens. You represent my little borough and you're a Swifty. Like, there's no way that she didn't know how bad it was unless she was in the trenches with us. Well, and the other thing is, it's pretty well known, I think, not only is Taylor willing to go up against, like, she's literally spitefully re-recording all of her own music because she got a shitty deal, you know, when she was younger to not have her own master recordings. I don't really remember the details, but she went up against Spotify or one of the streamers, right, about how much they were paying artists. She also... Because they wouldn't pay the artists for streams that were done under free memberships. So, like, if you joined Apple Music and you got your month free, uh, you could listen to a thousand songs and no one got paid for any right. of But that. Taylor also did get into it with Spotify as well with all of that. No, and she'll... Yeah, she took her music off yeah. Spotify. She'll be like, hold my earrings. Like, she is willing to get in there with, like, the big guys. I think it's going to be interesting to see what she does. Because she's, like, a notorious control freak as well, not just with music, but, like... She, I'm sure she's going ballistic She owns, yeah. like... Remember the um the uh, mm. private jet fiasco where for some reason I don't even know if these how the numbers got publicly mm-hmm. available, but it was like here are the celebrities who've tracked the most miles in their private jet. And hers were like astoundingly high and people were like, Whoa, that's you're a climate criminal, Taylor and her rep or somebody on her team was like, No guys, it's cool. She like rents out her jet to other people when she's not using it. I also heard she owns all of her own equipment that she tours with and rents that out to other artists when she's not using it. Like she literally has all of her own stuff. To the point of re recording her albums so she can like she's not to be trifled with and that's almost like to me a good indicator of just how powerful the live nation Ticketmaster duo uh because they're a behemoth just how powerful they are that like up until this point taylor swift has not found a way to either work around them or or go up against them so tbd guys it's gonna be interesting to see where this all goes but i'm glad brian survived and i'm glad that his family relationships have survived at least so far so far, he hasn't decided what he's going to do with the tickets yet, though. <laughs> More on that story as it develops. <laughs> it is to kind of transition into government again. Sure. I think that we have seen a generational change this year, and I'm mm. referring to Nancy Pelosi retiring, that who knows? Maybe that with this change in a, a younger generation coming about in public policy, there could be some type of thing where you know, AOC teams up with Taylor Swift and there actually can be the muscle of government you going guys, forward. The government is supposed to break up monopolies. Like they did it before. Right. Why are they mm-hmm. suddenly afraid to do it? I don't understand. Yeah. So like, who knows? I think that, that, you know, in Pelosi's era, they were very much reluctant to get into that stuff. I think that, that that's a generation who was so scared by, 
you know, the threat of communism and, and all labor unions are all communist sympathizers and all that stuff. Our generation and younger just knows that that's kind of ridiculous at this point. And so who knows? You could go back to that 1950 and before era of really looking and saying, is this a monopoly? Is this bad for commerce and for competitiveness in the economy? Yes, it is. Okay, we should seriously look into this. And I think that with this yeah. new generation coming into power. Yeah, and I think it's not as relevant to everyone's interests or the podcast theme, but a similar it's not as dramatic as the Ticketmaster fiasco, but the publishing industry, the biggest publishers have started to, like, do you guys remember when Penguin and Random House were two different publishers, and now it's Penguin mm. Random House? At this point, there's only a couple large publishing houses, and publishing is notorious for give it, throwing, like, $10 million at, you know, Prince Harry to write, to have a ghost-written memoir, and then, you know, someone who's writing a book, like a normie, you know, they get like almost nothing. And, you know, there's a lot of like inequality there too, because it's just like, I don't know. I don't think the industry or the context matters. It's just like anytime you let one or a very small handful of companies or conglomerates or even individual people have that insane amount of power, like it just never goes great. How many times do we need to watch <laughs> watch these things play out to be like, you know, I think it's bad when uh, there's no competition or there's no consequences for someone. I know also, I'm going on a lot of tangents here. Feel free to cut this in post, Clay. But um, but no, it's it's a bigger picture that you're bringing up, absolutely, um, of yeah. what is the role of government going to be with this generational change going forward. Well, and don't you think that, to just bring it back to the generational thing again, don't you think that Pelosi's of the world may have also been reluctant to to take a stand on things like this because it would be seen as like frivolous it's like, oh, no, Taylor Swift tickets. Like, why would I waste my political capital on this? Whereas it's like, yeah, at the end of the day, like the most pressing issue for Americans isn't like, you know, hours long disasters getting Taylor Swift tickets. But it's just like, OK, if this is happening with Ticketmaster, believe me, it's happening in all sectors of, you know, of American life. And I think any kind of like money and power hoarding of any kind that affects millions. Also, when you're living in a day and age where we've been price gouged on food and on gasoline and on all of these things that are completely readily available, but they have been able to mark up the price because there was a point when they weren't. And they're just not looking the, the these big corporations are not looking to give up the extra money that they are making. I think it's very easy to make a connection to your constituents that big gas is the same as big Ticketmaster. Yeah. It may not seem that way because, you know, one makes the car go vroom vroom and the other one makes Taylor Swift go sing sing. But it is a... They are connected in the sense that they are both using their power and the fact that you need you, you that a consumer is relying on them to be taking advantage of uh, of those consumers. And I think you know, I mean, I'm a big fan. I've talked about her before. I think that that is something that Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren does so well and so frequently, where she's able to kind of show that what Ticketmaster is doing may not bother you because you don't go to ticket you don't go to shows that require tickets, but it's actually yeah. systemic. What they're doing is, you know, not dissimilar from what other industries or what other titans of industry are also doing. I I do kind of take pause at beating up on 
Penguin Random House because, I mean, no one buys books anymore, so they can have a monopoly because they really don't have a very uh, lucrative product. <laughs> Brutal. So, you know, I'm going to let them <laughs> cast themselves off. Brian, what would be the equivalent of uh, Penguin Random House screwing up as badly as Ticketmaster did? Would it be buying a book and every other page is printed on? <laughs> and, like, there are just entire pages I, I just being left out of the story? Like, you buy like a like the seventh Harry Potter book, and the inside of it is like Minecraft. <laughs> like it, that's the only like level of clusterfuck that I think that you could possibly uh, like describe. Yeah, <laughs> what this is like. Yeah, it is. Uh, I I think, and again, getting big picture here, you can listen to podcasts like this, and and government and and policy type of news stories, and and watch CNN every day and all of that. But the everyday voter that doesn't necessarily pay attention to government on both the Republican and Democrat registered voters, they both say, we feel that the system is rigged against us. And when you do let these type of instances happen and the government does nothing about it, that just backs up their point. And so if you do want to actually very visibly be able to make a mark saying that you're on behalf of everyday American voters, going after a Ticketmaster is a step in the right direction and it could scare other companies into cleaning up their act as well. So on one hand, on the surface level, you can say it's frivolous. On the other hand, I think that it just does go with the narrative that these companies have control over our politicians and there's nothing that you can do about it because the politicians uh, are in the pocket of Ticketmaster as opposed to helping out the, the voters. Well, it's that makes me think of I'm not quoting anyone in spe- like specifically, but I feel like, you know, those like Joe Schmo in the diner type interviews where it's like, look, I don't care about politics. I'm too busy working five jobs and like trying not to lose my house. And it's just like there's a disconnect because people don't realize politics is like legislation and conversations and political pressure to make changes to how the system works so that you don't have to work five jobs and you're not going to lose your house. And mm-hmm. I think avoiding some of these things that might seem superficially seem smaller or not worth your time, like these are things that I think they add up, basically. Like it's the things that make things mm-hmm. harder for Americans. Even if no one's going to die, if they have to pay extra for a ticket, it's also like... I mean, that applies to just about everything else. It applies to how they get treated at work. Little things like, oh, well, during the pandemic or gas prices went up or, you know, the supply chains were a disaster for literally years. So everything started costing more. The prices haven't plummeted since, you know, gas prices went down a bit and supply chains seem to be doing better now and and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, I still, um, I just had a party this weekend. Brian and Clay can confirm and it was like a little weird. Some of the things like pigs in a blanket, like a, a party size box of pigs in a blanket. We were like, this is $30 for like 40 pigs in a blanket. Like sometimes I'm just like, why is this so expensive? These are shitty little hot dogs in a freezer. I don't understand. And it's just like, yeah, all that stuff adds up. And that's the sort of thing that um, I'm sort of losing the thread here. Sorry, but it's. If you sort of convince yourself, no, you ha- we're gonna we're gonna sit here in silence until you, until I- you correlate your pigs in a blanket metaphor. Okay, so the things that add up every single day, like those are the things that create the greater whole, 
which is that like it's prohibitively expensive to just be a normal American. And that doesn't just mean like, oh, I can't buy pigs and blanket for my party, but it's just like I'm never getting ahead. I'm never, you know, able to I mean normal things being out of reach for normal Americans is a problem regardless what regardless of what the exact thing is. Yeah, I'm very interested going into 2023, especially with this new Congress coming in, just who the new alliances are going to mm-hmm. be. Maybe Elizabeth Warren and AOC will start to to work together on co-sponsoring bills and things like that. Yeah. Uh, for these type of practices. Who knows? Wait and see, well, folks. Well, and remember like a week or two ago when it was like graduation night on Twitter and everyone was like saying their goodbyes? Twitter didn't actually end up dying, and I mean, it still might. What a shame. It was like, I think everybody was real. I mean, I guess we could also say that's another monopoly of sorts, but Twitter has both, it's had so many effects on political discourse, it's hard to like summarize. But I think some politicians, including the older ones, maybe, have gotten a little caught up in the like, what's big on Twitter? What are we hearing on Twitter? What gets the most retweets or whatever? Um, and it's just very noisy and I would love among other things, if, if people at least de-emphasize Twitter because it's gotten so sloppy and, or maybe spread out to other platforms or what have you, maybe they can get back to like longer term, bigger issues instead of just like, what's everyone screaming about on Twitter this week? But you know, Elon's, he's tweeting through it. You guys like the tweets just get weirder. Um, on that note about Mm. Elon, I'm actually, I, I was going to just say it, but I think that, you know, like when something really um, touches your soul, you should quote them directly. So I want to give a shout out to Twitter user John Semley3000, who tweeted on December 9th, 2022, the year of our Lord. The richest man in the world should not be so online. It's unbecoming. J.P. Morgan once took a boat to Egypt because he wanted to sleep in a tomb to imagine what it was like to be a dead pharaoh. That's what rich people should be doing. Not tweeting about the New York Times movie list. Yuck. I could not say it better myself. Mm. No, it's true. It is really... Like, in general, I think there's a brain drain going on at, like, the upper echelons. And I think Elon's the perfect poster child for that. This is a man whose family owns an emerald mine. He has been young since birth. Or he has been rich since birth. He has, like... He's done a lot of things that have failed. Somehow he figured out two things that have been successful, SpaceX and Tesla. And even with all of that success... All of that money, all of that access, the only thing that he cares about is looking cool on the internet. And it is just like, I feel (laughs) so bad. Like, imagine having all of those things and still thinking, am I going to get retweets? Like, it's just, no, no. Get a hobby, like a real one. Or go to Egypt and sleep in a tomb. I mean, you're so rich. Hunt poor people. Like, you could do it. You could literally live the most dangerous game. (laughs) Or just, like, you know, work toward fixing where we don't have to rely on oil so much. Like, if you have that amount of time, do something useful. Yeah, it's crazy to me that he and any other, you know, the Bezos, like, even the Kardashians, who I hate, and they claim to be billionaires. It's just like, what the fuck are you doing with your time and your money? It's just like, you could do anything. You could hire anyone. You know, if it's like, I know Kim's like, I'm a lawyer now. But that's all fake. Like, any of them could pick one thing 
and just do it. Like Bill Gates at one point was like, I really care about malaria and eradicating malaria. What if I just get a bunch of really smart... I know Bill Gates is not like a perfect philanthropist, whatever. Christine, we had misheard him. He was actually looking to get rid of Melinda. <laughs> and he, oh! <laughs> yeah, none of these guys can hang on to a life partner, by the way. I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, it's infuriating. And I think it says a lot about our system that the type of person who, with all the money and resources and time in the world, gets doesn't do anything with it. And it's like, how do we have a system that's rewarding the worst people in our society with the most money and power with which they end up doing nothing of value. Woo, capitalism, baby. All right. Okay, so it's been a little while, but just to remind you guys, we're working our way through the presidents and their recipients, and we're up to Gerald Ford. So when we get back, Brian is going to do a profile of Lady Bird Johnson. So stick around. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, the week. Christine said when it came time to comb through the medal recipients of one Mr. Gerald Ford, there's some notable names, you know, on the podcast, we tend to strive to find somebody who we had not maybe heard of before and then kind of shine a light on, you know, an incredible legacy or a wonderful story that, you know, just doesn't get its, uh, its due shine. But this go around when I was faced with looking through, uh, the recipients that he had given the medal to, one name stood out to me, and that was Lady Bird Johnson. And it was because I have, like, my... We have our show doc, and then I have my own show doc, where it's just, like, me keeping track of, like, what gay people have medals? Uh, what Academy Award winners have medals? And there's a little list that I meant to cultivate that I did not. I actually did it while we were prepping uh, in the little green room before the show of first ladies who have Presidential mm. Medal of Freedoms, because it's not... Who you would think. <laughs> Claudia Alta Johnson was born December 22nd, 1912 Her in Karnak, Texas. Claudia? Mm-hmm. We're 10 seconds in. I'm already learning new things. Incredible. During her infancy, a nursemaid remarked that baby Claudia was as pretty as a ladybird and a legend was born. Reports of the day differ over referring to a bird or a ladybird beetle, commonly referred to as a ladybug here in North America. But I like to think that it's an actual bird. In my mind, that nursemaid looked at her and said, this baby looks like a partridge. <laughs> Growing up, Lady Bird was shy and enjoyed spending as much time as she could in the outdoors. She once remarked that people always look at it as lonely, but to me it definitely was not. I spent a lot of time just walking and fishing and swimming. On top of loving nature, Lady Bird was a uniquely educated woman of the day. She graduated at 15 from Marshall Senior High School. At some point, she got wind that she had the highest grades in her class and purposely drove down her GPA to avoid having to make her valedictorian speech. After a summer semester at the University of Alabama, Lady Bird enrolled in the University of Texas. She received a bachelor's degree in history in 1933 and then a second bachelor's degree in journalism, cum laude, in 1934. After graduation, a friend in Austin introduced her to a man named Lyndon Baines Johnson, a 26-year-old congressional aide with political aspirations. She recalled feeling like a moth drawn to a flame, and it must have been mutual. 
Lyndon proposed on their first date, but Lady Bird was not looking to rush into a marriage. However, her attempts to hold back LBJ were futile. They were engaged within 10 weeks after their first date and then married on November 17th, 1934. Once they got married, Lyndon wanted to go deeper into politics. He decided to run for Congress for Austin's 10th district, and Lady Bird, wanting to see her new husband succeed, took $10,000, roughly $222,000 in today's money, from the inheritance she had received from her mother and financed the campaign. The campaign was a success, Lyndon was elected, and the couple moved to Washington, D.C. When LBJ enlisted in the Navy at the onset of the Second World War, Lady Bird took over his congressional office. Around the same time, she bought an Austin radio station called KTBC for $17,500. Again, with money from her inheritance. I was going to say, where's all this money coming from, Lady Bird? After finding success with radio ownership, she wanted to diversify her portfolio and decided to buy a television station. Lyndon objected. But Lady Bird was quick to remind him that her inheritance was her money and she was free to do with it what she would like. Wait, is she a hashtag girl boss (laughs) in the 1940s? She bought that station, KTBC7, for $22,500. When the stations were sold to Emmis Communications in 2003, they paid over $105 million to the Johnson's Trust. The success of these investments made her the first president's wife to have become a millionaire in her own right, with her own money, before her husband's election. Okay, I need to lie down. Are you just going to keep going? <laughs> uh, there's a lot. If she ends up I, being like a secret racist and this gets ruined for me, I'm going to be really upset. No, as far as I can tell, I didn't see any secret racism. Thank God. But, okay. You know. It's always out there. In 1960, Lyndon is selected by Massachusetts Senator John F. Kennedy to be his vice presidential running mate. Kennedy's wife, Jacqueline, was pregnant with their second child, so Lady Bird took on an expanded role. Over 71 days of campaigning, she traveled 35,000 miles and appeared at 150 events. Kennedy and Johnson won the election. She wrote in her diaries that while they enjoyed the profile and celebrity that came with the vice president's office, they found the role of VP to lack power. Mm. Tale as old as time. Mm. I mean, <laughs> she would have loved Veep. I was going to say, <laughs> they made a I'm... whole show about it. <laughs> On November 22nd, 1963, General F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Mm. LBJ and Lady Bird are present just two cars behind the president when he is killed. Lyndon is sworn in as the 36th president of the United States within hours. Lyndon is sworn in as the 36th president of the United States on Air Force One within hours. Lady Bird is worried about the reaction the country will have to her compared to her predecessor. But during her time as second lady, she had the responsibility of filling in for Jackie Kennedy at events when the first lady wasn't available or wasn't up to it. Overall, Lady Bird filled in for Jackie over 50 times, on average of once a week. Lady Bird is not one of the faces I would imagine on the Mount Rushmore of First Ladies, Martha, Mary Todd, Eleanor, Jackie, Nancy. But one of her first acts upon becoming First Lady is to start the Capital Beautification Project to make her current hometown more beautiful and more desirable to visit. The project plants millions of flowers throughout D.C. on streets, outside buildings, on roadways and highways, and she is quoted as saying, where flowers bloom, so does hope. 
This leads to her being an active advocate on the Highway Beautification Act, nicknamed Lady Bird's Bill. This makes her the first first lady to advocate for a bill publicly. She's also the first lady that creates the modern structure of the first lady's office, hiring her own press secretary, chief of staff, and even her own liaison to Congress. She is instrumental in convincing LBJ to run for the Democratic nomination in 1964 when he doesn't think the Democratic Party will have him, for she feels that if he doesn't, the Democrats will lose momentum and almost certainly lose the White House. He does so and wins in a landslide against Barry Goldwater. In 1965, she is the first First Lady to hold the Bible for her husband as he is sworn in as president, creating a new tradition that continues today. She is just as instrumental in convincing her husband that he is not well enough to run for a second term in 1968. In 1970, Lady Bird publishes her book, A White House Diary, an intimate behind-the-scenes look at her husband's presidency, thus making her the first First Lady to write a memoir about her time in the White House. She remains friendly and builds relationships with a large span of First Ladies of the United States, stemming all the way from Eleanor Roosevelt to Laura Bush. When she died on July 11, 2007, she became the fourth oldest First Lady behind Nancy Reagan, Rosalind Carter, who is currently 95, and Bess Truman, who lived to be 97. I have to say, I did not know that my dear friend Claudia was so instrumental in shaping yeah. the office of the First Lady the way that we know it today. Yeah. Um, especially because I think that so much of that credit goes to Nancy Reagan and to Hillary Clinton. And I think that neither of them are who they were or are, depending on which one of them you are, um, without Lady Bird. So you figure one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11. There's been 11 first ladies since the introduction of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, mm-hmm. including Jackie, who obviously is the uh, is married to the man who creates the honor. Three of them have the medal and eight do not. Oh. I think it's very interesting that the three that do are obviously Lady Bird, Rosalind Carter, and Nancy Reagan. So you figure Jackie, Pat Nixon, Betty Ford, Barbara Bush... Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama, Melania Trump, and Jill Biden do not. Jill Biden, we can take her off the table. It's, you know, too recent. What first lady do you think is most overdue for their Presidential Medal of Freedom? I figure I would do this, uh, you know, little poll. Well, I do think that that first ladies and uh, now we can officially say first gentlemen going forward that they do need to make a, a specific impact on America. And I'm looking at President Ford's speech that he gave to Lady Bird when she received the medal. And he says, quote, her leadership transformed the American landscape and preserved its natural beauty as a national treasure. And he's referring to, you know, her beautification projects around Washington, D.C. and nationwide as well. And the fact that she spearheaded that, I think definitely she's deserved of the honor as well. And I am curious. I wonder in the years since the Medal of Freedom started, who really, you know, brought forth programs to help better America. And, you know, you can whatever you want to say about the war on drugs and things like that. I think that Nancy Reagan did have an impact both on children and drugs and also, you know, health initiatives as well. 
in terms of exercise and all of that stuff. How successful and those inventing programs AIDS. were. <laughs> and inventing AIDS <laughs> and crack. <laughs> how, how successful those programs are is uh, definitely right. up for debate. Right. But, yeah, I think that, that absolutely first ladies and first gentlemen should be honored for the initiatives that they brought forth in terms of bettering America. Well, and so the first lady role can be a bit of a trap. And it's really interesting to me. I know we don't like post the video of our recordings, but just for the audience, like I was doing like exaggerated draw job uh, reactions <laughs> the entire time Brian was going because it's like it's pretty amazing. Like the 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 role of women in general in American society was changing sh- so rapidly in the middle of the 20th century. I feel like Lady Bird it does kind of sound like she was preparing her whole life for that role, even though she wasn't that old when she got it. Mm-hmm. But it was just like she was very well educated. She came into money. She became a little bit of a like, you know, tycoon herself and, and was independently wealthy and powerful, even outside of being the first lady. So I think she was just she had this on ramp. I think maybe she did have big shoes to fill in because Jackie was such a sort of beloved public figure and then very sympathetic when, you know, she's there with like her husband's brain spatter on her and the Air Force, famous Air Force One photo. Like it's almost just feels inevitable. Like it had to be her. She was the the first lady for that moment to take over and to have like the smarts and a little bit of a business. I mean, the idea of setting up like her own press secretary, her own office, like that probably comes from her business savvy, which she already had before she became first lady. And then it's insane to think about how long it's been. And now in, you know, the last couple of first ladies, it's like, you know, Michelle Obama being like, let's move, you know, like, let's build a vegetable garden in the um, White House to teach kids about healthy eating. And I'm pretty sure she still got shit on for that. You know, like, even these other intelligent and successful women who are like, how can I make a, you know, essentially like a non-controversial take up a few causes and make a difference. It's like, I only like Melania Trump, like 1% of the time she'll be like either unintentionally hilarious or just whatever. Um, I 99% when she, when she did that goth Christmas, that shit went all the way off. It was so good. And then it was so good. And that's what I was going to say is the leaked recording from like her. She said, I don't want to be here and I'm going to make sure no one else wants to be here. It's going to be horrible. She said, who the cares about Christmas? Has there been a less consequential first lady since the medal of freedom was introduced? No. I don't think there's been anyone who didn't I don't think there's been anyone who wanted the job less than Melania and I don't think there's anyone who's risen to the challenge worse than Melania. You know, someone like Hillary, I get talk about a trap, right? Like and I don't mean to contrast her with Michelle in terms of like intelligence, success, education level, but just ambition. Like Michelle's always been like I do not want to be in politics myself. And Hillary's like, I super do want that. She struggled so much as first lady. Hillary did because it was just like, oh, what? She thinks she can introduce healthcare legislation? Like, how fucking dare she? And it's like, there's some fairness to that argument because we elect someone, you know, this isn't a monarchy. And, you know, we don't automatically, uh, I mean, we saw all the crap with like Jared and Ivanka with Trump. Like, there's, there's a valid distaste for the family members, whether by blood or by marriage, 
of an elected official taking on too much of a what seems like a legislative or it's not legislative executive role and that's that's fair so i'm like it's okay that that was a little bit controversial but just the degree to which you know she got torn apart and then that obviously scared her successors to be like well i don't want to get ripped to shreds by actually trying to do something major so i'll just i don't even remember don't have a single memory of laura bush picking a even like a soft cause as first lady, but I also just remember. Well, she her was a she's a former librarian, so literacy oh, and literacy. And book okay, yeah. Honestly, yeah. I, I, uh, you know, I thought I you am. were like she was very into being quiet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I remember their Christmas decorations being very good, and I remember every year they did like a cute video of their dog running around and like looking at the Christmas decorations. So like, she checkers had a good... was checkers Clinton or Bush? Come on, checkers is Nixon. Are you insane? That was the famous was, checkers. Was Buddy. Bush's dog. Buddy? No, Buddy no. was Clinton. Buddy That's was what Clinton. I said. Clinton was Buddy. No, yeah. they had like a Scotty. What was his name? It was like a little black dog. Okay. Sincere apologies to, to that man because I can't remember his name. But so what all I mean to say is Laura Bush did have a sense of like when to be cute and when to be sort of warm in a way that resonated with people because again, that wasn't my favorite president and she wasn't my favorite first lady, but I'm like... Yeah, she kind of nailed it at Christmas, and yeah, literacy is a perfectly fine thing. It's just like... I think she was exactly in tune with the Bush administration, which was to be inoffensive enough that to kind of gloss over their policies that affected the United States. To be like, hey, I'm a good guy here. Like, I'm going to destroy the environment and My restrict rights. Nice, but hey, she? And yeah, we're like, yeah, exactly. she's nice. Well, and then after the sort of interpersonal and marital chaos of the clinton and second clinton term let's say i think it was also just nice that it was this boring married couple that you know we'll never leave each other <laughs> never like mm-hmm. you know it was also just kind of like yeah the biggest scandal in terms of their family was like the girls getting drunk when they were in college and it's like mm-hmm. whatever so yeah it's i don't know and and jill biden and now they get drunk every day on television on the fourth <laughs> hour of the today show however you say your name um and jill biden i i mean i came into her she walked into that building already with a big fan from me but i have to be honest i I can't really name much that she's been doing other than just being a good wing woman for joe it's it's hard like it's it can be very minimizing to a woman especially like a, a woman who's been successful in any kind of professional or personal capacity in a weird way, it's like not that different than a than a vice presidency, right? Like you are so close to the presidency and the White House. In the case of the first lady, you literally live in the White House, but like you actually can't do that much. I do wonder if culturally, uh, Kamala Harris's vice presidency, there's almost this background, or you could even say it's in the forefront of misogyny of almost treating Kamala in that first lady role. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe uh, this is recency bias, but I do feel like she's been pushed aside as a vice president more than previous vice presidents have been. Well, I think her being the unofficial 51st senator for the Democratic Party has really hurt her. Mm -hmm. But I will say, because I feel like you've done a really good job of summarizing the um, kind of like 92 and beyond uh, first ladies, 
I feel like, you know, who also we were joking about her earlier, doesn't get um, enough shine is is Betty Ford. Oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, somebody who really kind of changed the conversation about addiction and what that looks like and uh, how we talk about it and how we treat it. I mean, she literally has a treatment center named after her. Yeah. She was very ahead of her time on on addiction issues. I mean, any woman who can be played by Michelle Pfeiffer in a biopic, she deserves a medal. She's doing something (laughs) right. Yeah. Uh, So as I mentioned in my profile, Lady Bird Johnson kept a very detailed diary uh, that inspired her to publish a memoir at the end of her time as First Lady. One of the most fascinating and much discussed parts of that book and her diary are the entry from... November 22nd, 1963, the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated and her husband, Lyndon Baines Johnson, became the 36th president of the United States. Clay and Christine are going to read a selection from that day's entry. They are going to be giving us an energy that is dignified, poised, uh, but also heartbroken, much like Lady Bird. Okay, and just to uh, before I start, there's a name drop of someone named Nellie. That is in the part that I'm going to read. That's Nellie Connolly, the governor of Texas' wife. And then I went to see Nellie. There it was different because Nellie and I have gone through so many things together since 1938. I hugged her tight, and we both cried, and I said, Nellie, John's going to be all right. And Nellie said, yes, John's going to be all right. Among her many other fine qualities, she is also strong. I turned and went back to the small white room where Lyndon was. Mac Kildriff, the president's press man on the trip, and Kenny O'Donnell were coming and going. I think it was from Kenny's face that I first knew the truth, and from Kenny's voice that I first heard the words, The president is dead. Mr. Kildriff entered and said to Lyndon, Mr. President. It was decided that we would go immediately to the airport. Heard plans were made about how we should get to the cars and who was to ride in which car. Our departure from the hospital and approach to the cars was one of the swiftest walks I ever made. We got in. Lyndon told the agents to stop the sirens. We drove along as fast as we could. I looked up at a building, and there already was a flag at half-mast. I think that was when the enormity of what had happened first struck me. Wow. I got a little... Guys, I feel like I was in Texas, sort of against my will. I was like a little emotion, honestly. (laughs) It was, right? I can't put music behind that. I'm not going to declare a winner. Because our nation was the real loser, losing a leader like Jack Kennedy. And an excellent head of hair. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's always... Um, Yeah. But yeah, to wrap this up, I think that I can best do so by quoting President Gerald Ford from his speech on January 10th, 1977, when he gave Lady Bird her medal. One of America's great first ladies, she claimed her own place in the hearts and history of the American people, in councils of power, or in homes of the poor. She made government human with her unique compassion and with her grace, warmth, and wisdom. Mm. And I could not agree more, Jerry. I could not agree more. Yep. She's, a, she's an unproblematic fave from now on. 
And it was a good choice by Ford to step across the aisle with that and give it to a Democratic executive first lady. It was. I mean, I'd like to see more of that. I feel like Joe Biden is the last president who there's even a slight chance that he will give the medal to George W. Bush. (laughs) And I feel like my only hope is if he does give it to George W. Bush, that Biden gives it to Michelle Obama on the same day so they can be together. Oh, my God. Ooh, that's a great idea. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. But yeah, so that is that on Lady Bird. Uh, We will be back with our medals of the it feels weird to say the week because our last episode was in October but medals of the week yes (laughs) it's that time everyone our medals of the week Christine get us started fun one. I don't know how old our, our massive, massive one listener base is, but uh, some of us are old enough to remember the early aughts fashion successes and failures. And one Katie Holmes decided to bring back something from the early aughts that I thought we would never see again, which is a dress over bootcut jeans. Um, she went to something sponsored by iHeartRadio. I don't know. She's on like a very mediocre red carpet with a very corporate background and she's wearing a satiny, what looks like a bridesmaid dress with like kind of like a bow around her boobs. And it's right over a pair of baggy jeans and sneakers. Now the the outrage on the internet (laughs) that she is attempting to bring this back has been a joy to watch, not least because it's also triggered a lot of like slideshows of Disney starlets and like other, I'm sure Lindsay Lohan, I think even Anne Hathaway fell victim to the mini dress over jeans when everyone was doing it in like 2002, right? Like 9-11 happened and we were like, you know what? You know, you could die tomorrow. Just put a, put a dress over your jeans. Um, we had been broken. We had seen such an atrocity that we just thought, I can put this slip dress over a pair of jeans. Absolutely. (laughs) That looks good. (laughs) And so, I don't know, maybe Katie Holmes knows something I don't, or the rest of us don't, um, that she's like, no, we're bringing post 9-11 fashion back. But I admire the chutzpah. I think she knows what she was. She does sort of have a permanent smirk, but like the smirk on her face in the photos tells me that she knew exactly what she was doing. And for that reason, I have no choice but to stand and I have no choice but to give her my medal of the week. Big question. Was this look her idea or her stylist's idea? Mm. I would love it if it were a stylist because that means that it's absolutely on purpose. And it's either like intentional camp or it's like looking around and being like, look, Gen Z is rediscovering like 90s, early aughts fashion. This is going to be the next thing. And you're going to be the first one to like wear it on a red carpet. Oh, see, I think it's more that she was told, like, oh, well, millennial fashions or, like, you know, beginning of the millennium fashion is coming back. And she was like, I already did it. I I wore this exact outfit to the premiere of Dawson's Creek. (laughs) And I think that, like, it's, like, something like that. Like, it's like a wink and a nod. Like, I've done this before and I'll do it again. See, I think that would actually be cool if they replicated the look that she'd worn Dawson's Creek era instead of some bullshit choice that she did. Well, either way, I love it. Yeah. Can't wait to see what she does next. What was the last thing that she actually acted in? Batman Begins? Uh, Nobody knows. I have no idea. She got an 
obscene amount of money from Tom Cruise, and she and Suri have just been like vibing in New York City for 15 years. And honestly, good for them. Um, she's been in stuff since because I know she's the mother and the giver. I don't even know what the that adaptation is. about. What is it? An allegory against organized religion, where like everyone has like one name, and they don't get to celebrate holidays or birthdays. Isn't that Sounds just very Scientology. what it is to be a Jehovah's Witness? Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump in. My medal of the week is actually a Limbaugh, and mm-hmm. it goes to the a little company um, that used to mail us DVDs, um, <gasps> but now just continues to make horrible decisions. Um, that's Netflix. I am one of like a few dozen people, I think, who are able to find time over the Thanksgiving holiday to go and see the Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, at um, a theater. And the theater was completely sold out. We went to an Alamo draft house. It was really, really fun. And it's one of those movies where there are so many twists that, you know, you really enjoy kind of being able to like feel the revelations kind of reverberate through the audience. Uh, The movie made, I believe they're projecting $18 million, uh, which is a lot of money considering a lot of people have not gone back to theaters after the coronavirus pandemic. And Netflix decided seven days, that's it. We're pulling it out. And all of the like theater uh, distributors were like, no, no, no. It's really making a lot of money. You should keep it in for another week. And they said, no, And I don't understand why, because I will say I won't spoil the movie, but the um, one of the twists is like a very small detail. And if you're watching that on a, I don't know, 24 inch screen in your grandma's house that was bought 50 years ago, you might have a hard time catching it. And, you know, it might be something you have to go back and rewind uh, to try to move closer to the television to figure out. So just as somebody who's a big fan of movies, seeing movies in theaters, and particularly like whodunits, which I don't think we get enough of, I'm really disappointed that Netflix uh, kind of fumbled the bag on this. Even more so when you consider the fact that they just recently raised my monthly subscription cost. And there were millions of dollars just left on the table uh, that you could have just reaped uh, by leaving them you know, movie in theaters for just a couple of more days. So I think they're freaking out so much about subscriber levels that they're doing these shrewd moves like that to do that. And yeah, I agree. Bad move. But when it does drop, uh, do watch glass onion. I found, I was so enjoyable. I, you know, could not, uh, endorse it any more. Brian brought up the theater going experience and the energy that you can have navigating the twists and turns of a film with a, with a group of people. Brian and I saw Jojo Rabbit in the theater. I knew you were going to tell this story. I knew it. <laughs> Jojo Rabbit in the movie theater. Because uh, before the pandemic, Brian had a thing that he had to watch all the Best Picture nominees before the Oscar broadcast. And uh, so we saw it. And it's a Holocaust movie, so there's a lot of like shocking, terrible stuff that happens. But there's a particularly shocking death, which is revealed in a particularly devastating manner in the movie, but it's sort of just like a punch <laughs> to the gut and like a ah uh, kind of moment. This woman in the theater with us screamed like as though she had just been stabbed. And it's like, <laughs> I can't imagine what it would have been like to watch Jojo Rabbit and experience that shocking character death <laughs> without it being accompanied by a blood curdling scream. Like that will always be part of that story for me. And so this is what we lose. It was a blood-curdling scream and then like 30 seconds worth of like 
kind of like whisper shouting, like, I can't believe it. Oh my uh, God. It was really, really happening? good. And then like the person like shushed her and she was like, what? I, I, I'm shocked. Like it was so good. Like just like wherever that woman is, what I want to go see another you movie see with you. I, I have to get some color in this. Uh, Kew Garden Cinema, like three weeks after it had oh. been released. The perfect time to see that kind of movie. And the perfect place, I bet. Yes. It was amazing. Wonderful. So you guys, yeah, I have to agree with Brian. This is what we lose when we yank things out of the theater. I don't want to uh, praise Netflix, but the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio that was released yesterday is is very good. Kate Blanchett plays a monkey. She could do anything. She could be a villain. Well, my pick is... We discussed it when the news came about earlier this week. We lost a Hall of Fame Christine. Mm. Not Christine Sear, thank God. Mm. Uh, another Christine who had a, an equal impact on society. <laughs> I uh, want to go into a sports metaphor now, which is called a locker room guy. If you're not familiar with that phrase, it's someone who definitely contributes to a team when they are on the field, but where their true worth is is when the cameras are off and they're able to get the entire team to get along, and they hold everyone together. That's a locker room guy. And one of music's greatest locker room guys passed away, Christine McVie from the band Fleetwood Mac. A bit of a shock. No one knew that she was ill when she did pass away, but someone half-jokingly said, obviously she was going to die first from all the stress of holding all of those crazy people together for half of a century where they didn't kill each other. And it's (laughs) true. She was the one who, uh, there were obviously a lot of egos and a lot of cocaine in Fleetwood Mac in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and she managed to hold everyone together. She was very close with Stevie Nicks and very close with uh, Lindsey Buckingham and kind of held everyone together and is an underrated songwriter. If you look at the uh, Fleetwood Mac greatest hits, even though that we think of it as a three-way split between Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham, and Christine McVie, half of the tracks on the greatest hits were written by Christine McVie, and she was an underrated songwriter. And uh, now that she's passed away, I think that it's it's only proper to uh, to honor her. So yeah. if you haven't listened to Fleetwood Mac lately, I recommend it because uh, we lost a big one. Well, also her vocals, like Stevie Nicks is sort of the iconic voice of Fleetwood Mac. So guys, to our viewers, we always have jokey display names on our screens when we do our recordings. And Clay's is Songbird, and I have to imagine that's because I don't know what what number of songs, particularly like successful ones that she sang, but she has like a very, it's like strong but very vulnerable voice. And I think maybe she could have gotten overlooked as a vocalist too. Yeah, I mean, she was never known for, you know, crazy escapades and all that. You certainly got enough of that with Stevie and Lindsay. And she was the one that that just kind of held everyone together and was was low drama and kind of brought everyone together in that way. So it wasn't, you know, three different people that were crazy and beating the hell out of each other constantly. So, yeah, I think that that sometimes the, the person who is again, in the locker room where the cameras are off and that's where they do their work. Those people are the ones that are overlooked, but uh, they still should be recognized, though, for, for all the work that, that she did. And so I think that we uh, we lost an all-timer. So R. there you go. R.I.P. To a, to a real one. To a real Christine. So, like, 
I'm not going to allow Christine on Christine hot crime here. Like Christine McVie sings so many of Fleetwood Mac's most iconic songs. Mm. Um, Little Lies, You Make Loving Fun, mm. Everywhere. I mean, like th- the hits were there. She wrote the to show how selfless she was. She wrote Don't Stop but handed the opening verse to Lindsey Buckingham where everyone assumed that he was the one that wrote it. But she let him sing the first verse and then came in on the other verses. But that's her song. Is there a woman that Lindsey Buckingham didn't like screw over in some way or no? (laughs) It's true. No. And if you haven't been screwed over, it's coming. (laughs) He's still out there. Wait. Yeah. Wait. Um, We, when this news broke, I think it was like last week, right? In our, in our Limbaugh group text, I shared, I don't remember if it was the video or just a gif of the Silver Springs mm-hmm. performance. I think it was like they were reuniting. It was like 90s era. So like this grudge was old. And when Stevie Nicks sings like you'll never get away from the sound of the woman that loves you, like the daggers she is shooting to him across the stage. It's just, yeah. Can you And can you imagine Christine was trying to deal with all their drama in the f***ing 70s when they didn't have like a group chat like she had to like Stevie would just come into her room and sit down and be like oh my god you're never gonna guess what this asshole did and she's like oh my god yeah you had to listen to just him. that same performance the reunion concert to show just how much Christine McVie would just like be shitting out hits one after the other there's a song in that concert that's incredible that she sings it's a brand new song and they were just so busy she just never recorded it in the studio so that's the only, the only time it was ever performed is in that concert. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. Mm. I strive to one day have that kind of creative output, but I don't know. Time's time's ticking. We'll see. That's uh, Christine. The equivalent for that with you would be like this incredible Twitter thread that just like only exists on Twitter, but it could be a novel. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's all I got. Yeah. What does everybody want for Christmas this year? World peace. Oh my God, Brian. That's that's adorable, Mr. Griswold. <laughs> uh, what do I want for Christmas? I want an Hermes throw, just like Meghan Markle. Oh, you want a $2,000 Hermes <laughs> throw to cry on? Yeah, should we, in the next in the next episode, should we do another hand the Limbaugh's to Brian again, and he, all three picks will be toward the Harry and Meghan documentary? Yes, I would love, yeah, because okay. the second part two or whatever um, is allegedly coming out next week, so I think it'll be pretty timely. They're threatening society with a part two. Mm-hmm. It's like Avatar. Like, we don't want it, but it's just, it's coming. <laughs> it just keeps coming in it. And, and we just give them money for no reason. For some, I saw a little preview in the confessional. It's Harry, it's Megan, and for some reason, no one can explain it. It's Kate Winslet. Like, I don't even know how she ended up there. <laughs> There's nothing she can't do. She can play a monkey. Or no, that was right, Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Sorry. Blanchett, the idea that yeah. Kate Blanchett isn't playing Monster the Whale in Pinocchio is has me a little upset. Like, oh no, wait, wait until you see the film. Like, did I mention <laughs> that the monkey uh, does not speak English? Just makes noises. <laughs> oh my god. I okay. Oh yeah. I had other plans for this evening, but I think I have to watch that now. Thank you. Uh, you should watch it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Behave yourself, guys. Yes. Happy holidays. Time.